And now, from the dark corners of the internet, where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the beer flows steady, it's Paul's Security Weekly. Yeah, episode 400. So this time when you fire up your packet capture, make sure you've got plenty of disk space because we're going to be here a while. Pour yourself a beer, but make sure you've got a 12-pack in reserve. And Well, I don't know if you want to give the intern control of your botnet or bot Bitcoin mining rig for that long. So check in it from time to time today. In any case, here's your host, a man who never thought he'd have the stamina to keep this going for that long. Neither did his wife. Paul Asadorian! Welcome, everyone, to Security <laughs> Weekly, episode 400. Holy so shit. excited to be here. We've got Bloody Marys. We've got uh, a cast and crew. We've got fabulous interviews. We're doing this in support of the EFF. You go to wiki.securityweekly.com, go to episode 400. You can find our agenda for the day. Uh, you can find a link to donate to the EFF. You'll hear me say that a lot today. Donate to the EFF. Please do that. There is a link in the show notes. Supporters.eff.org forward slash donate. Please take the time today while you're watching the show to go donate to the EFF. Uh, we've got a lot on tap for you today. Our first interview will be with Marcus Random. Then we have Billy Rios. Then we have Jeremy and Richard from the EFF to talk about the EFF. We have a panel. One vulnerability to rule them all until the next one with H.D. Moore, Dave Kennedy, and Rob Fuller. Then we have Mike Poor from In Guardians, who was like interview with Ed Skoda's number two uh, on the show. So we brought him back 396 episodes later. Uh, he may have been on there once or twice in, in the meantime. Mm, I think it sounds better when I say we're bringing him on 396 96. episodes later. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk breaches with Santa, Michael Santarcolangelo. Uh-huh. And, and, then, ja and Jack. And Jack. <laughs> and then a very special Stories of the Week. We're going to bring Space Rogue back, and it's going to be a Hacker News Network Stories of the Week. Uh, and we also have Jason Street to help us do Stories of the Week. So we've got an epic day uh, from now until 6 p.m. today. We will take a lunch break. I want to mention that during our lunch break, there will be something very special. We have very special content. During lunch, our uh, audio video editor expert extraordinaire, Steve Reichberg, has gone back through the past however many episodes to come up with 34 minutes of content of videos that are solely the five questions from various guests. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so you will see that for 34 minutes. Um, and then after that, you'll hear. Uh, for the rest of the time, the original interview with Mike Poor and Ed Scotus that we did on episode four. Um, so we'll, we'll rebroadcast that, which will be, uh, that'll be pretty special. So I want to introduce the hosts for this show. Uh, I'll start with my right, Mr. Larry Pesci. Hooray! In studio. And, Welcome. Uh, and uh, I'm stirring my Buddy Mary with a pickle. Yes. <coughs> Not... Jack Daniel. Where? Is Father Christmas today. In very, indeed I am. Very nice get up. Uh, do I want to know what is lurks? No, no, never mind. I don't want to know. It's what's got a, a Monty Python <clears throat> version of Father Christmas. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not quite dead yet. As one of our, <laughs> there's that age again. One of our Twitter, 
Jeez. One of the, the Twitter followers said, uh, congrats on 400. One for every year Jack Daniel has been alive. <laughs> Jack has some choice words. Jeff Mann is here in the studio. Welcome, Jeff. Thank Jeff you. Good morning. Good morning, uh, everyone. Tenable. Uh, Mr. Joff Fire is here in studio. Look who he is. Look at this. Look at Not on the line. Actually made it to the studio. He, in the studio. He is, in fact, a real human and not a cyborg. Or that, That's right. I'm not a cardboard cutout. Yeah. So it was very exciting coming up to Providence. And, uh, you know, we're here. Frequented some excellent establishments last night, and so here I am yeah, in the went, flesh. You went to the Fez. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this next interview is sponsored by Tenable Network Security, the creators of Nessus, the world's best vulnerability scanner. Check out Nessus Enterprise and Nessus Enterprise Cloud and engage your IT department in the vulnerability management process today. And now, Mr. Marcus Random is on the lines via Skype. Marcus, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, a lot has happened since... You've been on the show last, and since this episode is uh, dedicated to the EFF, I thought we would start by talking about uh, some privacy bits. Um, so in a lot of this, you know, the first question I have, Marcus, is when we use new technology, what, what privacy rights are we giving up, and should we have to give up those privacy rights to use this new technology? Yeah, start with an easy question. Why don't you? Uh, <laughs> I'm not easy anyway. We're just we're where's your bloody Mary, Marcus? I uh, I don't have one. Room service. Um, you know, I I'd need tequila to answer that one fully. But I mean, first off, one of the things we need to think about when we're talking about privacy is is privacy really isn't a unitary thing. There's different kinds of privacy. So when you say, um, what privacy do we give up when we're using a new technology? Are we talking about keeping Amazon from being able to collect information about our shopping habits so that they can regurgitate targeted ads at us? Or are we talking about um, uh, government surveillance or are we talking about some kind of commercial surveillance? And I think it's really, you know, it's the usual security question of what's our threat model? Who are we worried of protecting? Who are we worried about protecting what against? And, and, and that's really the concern I think everybody needs to look at. What are you using the new technology for? If you get your new cell phone with the idea that you're going to use your new cell phone so that you can do drug deals without getting caught, that's probably a mistake. If you're using your new cell phone with the idea that you're not going to get advertising content from anyone other than your cell phone's provider, um, then you're probably, you know, you're probably on the right track. And so I think really when we're going to talk about privacy for new technologies that we're pushing into, we should be thinking about um, what kind of privacy we expect from that device. That said, of course, um, our expectations are constantly under attack along every one of those axes. Yeah. So when, when I think the example I think of, and you kind of talked about it more towards the Amazon model, and God forbid we talk about the Facebook model and the Google model. And, you know, I feel like they know a lot about me, maybe more than the government, some would say. And it's not so much that they know something about me. It's who can access what they know about me that concerns me, that could have negative impacts on me. It's one of my, I don't know how everyone else feels, but that's one of my personal concerns about privacy. Yeah, that's that, that. That is one of the issues, and and you know, I think one of the one of the ways that, that we as a society should be thinking about that particular problem is to kind of decouple ourselves from concern about certain types of activities. Uh, 
you know, I had somebody who was looking at my Amazon um, had also looked at information a while back and was like, you really looked at a 55 gallon drum of lubricant? Are you are you crazy? Um, <laughs> and it was because person. someone had yeah, someone had sent me a link to, you know, uh, apparently you can buy lube in really large quantities from from Amazon if you're if you're into that. And stuff. the reviews are hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, and the thing is, I, you know, we can we can either say I'm going to protect people from being able to see what Marcus looked at um, or we can simply say, you know, get over it. I mean, what I do is what I do. And I think you know, a lot of the problems that we have involving certain classes of privacy boil down to deciding that, you know, my sexuality or my hobbies or, or whatever it is that I do is is not only not your business, but it's actually not interesting. And if we can shift towards an environment where we, we really don't we really don't care, um, then I think actually a lot of these problems go away. I mean, if you you know, you know, I occasionally drink alcohol. I mean if I open about that, then you can't come along and say, whoa, 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 I saw you drink some tequila. I can go, yeah, it was excellent tequila. What's your problem? Yeah, um, ooh, you know, we, we need to push towards that. <laughs> um, I haven't, I'm, I'm, I'm dry out here. That's why I was thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, Marcus, so, you know, while some people's perception of what may be leaked as part of your privacy, you know, could be debated whether they care or not, I think Maybe some people's employers would care, depending on what your activities are. Maybe your spouse might might care. Um, but another area that I think is very interesting, I think not just so much um, a violation of it is a violation of your privacy, but it can have other ramifications. And I'm I'm thinking about you know I don't want to say the Internet of Things because I think it's multiple facets. We've got these you know a device that connects to the network that's embedded that talks up to the cloud, and then allows you to control it with an app on your phone. And there's just so many points in there where security and privacy can go horribly wrong. And people could use that potentially against you. Now, I haven't necessarily seen specific cases where this has happened, but I, I certainly think the, the potential is there. And what can we do about that situation to make sure that when all of us have a home alarm or home surveillance system that is connected in the same way I described, um, how do we prevent that level of information from falling in the wrong hands? Well, I hear the uh, the Amish lifestyle is a viable alternative. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I mean that's that's viable. really that's really what it's boiling down to is that you know convenience convenience always has some kind of a price, and the question that you've got to decide is whether that's a price that you're that you're willing to pay or not. Um, from from again from my standpoint, um, I thought long and hard about this about. 10 years ago and I decided, you know, I, I, I really don't care. You want to know what's in my refrigerator? I'll, I'll take a picture and send it to you. I'm not home, so I can't do it. But, you know, conceptually, um, conceptually, if you want to rummage through my sock drawer, I, I, I really don't care. Um, if you, you know, there's a 44 cold Python in my sock drawer. If you really <laughs> want to know what's in there and some socks, I mean, you know, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you anything. So maybe one of the issues it, it, around this is again to decide what we care about from a standpoint of what needs to be protected for privacy. I'm, mean, you know, thinking thinking about this historically, privacy 
has become um, a middle class concept after the Enlightenment, where we had the rise of the middle class. Historically, the only people who had privacy were the the wealthy and powerful, and the only they were the only people who really needed privacy um, because they wanted to make sure that the the middle class and and particularly the lower class didn't realize how much stuff they'd managed to rip off and what nice lives they were leading at the expense of the lower class, who would do the pitchfork and torches thing if they really knew. Um, so when when you look at privacy in the society, you need to ask really who's who needs the privacy and why, and that that's that's another issue. I mean, the, you know, the rich do need to keep things private because honestly, if we knew how badly they were screwing us, we'd kill a lot of them. So poor people don't need privacy. Is that the gist of this? Historically, <laughs> poor people have never had privacy. I and mean, if you if you look at the, the vast amount of human experience, poor people are generally lucky to get food and, and be left alone and not be killed. Um, but you look at, you know, uh, life, life on life in the Roman era, you know, no, the poor had absolutely no privacy. Life in the Middle Ages, the poor had no privacy. Privacy only became a social concept applying to everybody in general during this brief period during the enlightenment when when philosophers political philosophers started to think um maybe there's a right to privacy and maybe that right should be extended equally equally to everybody and if you'll recall i mean the you know the the enlightenment kind of ended badly for the french monarchy is is there is it worth it in a lot of circumstances i guess that we could apply our own level of privacy on top of the technology that we're using. Yeah, that's what we need to do. We need to decide what we're what we're okay with and what we're not okay with as as we go forward. I mean, the the one place where I will say that the technologies that are coming along um, aren't doing a very good job with respect for, to privacy is they're not being very upfront, honest about what they're actually going to do with the data. And I think I think that would be nice. Um, but, um, you know, uh, this might shock you, but uh, I don't have a Facebook account. I don't have Facebook privacy issues. It just kind of goes hand in hand. <laughs> I, I, I do have some I do have some privacy issues around, you know, the big data Amazon issue. Mm -hmm. um, but again, my my response to that was to think about it and to conclude that I, I, I guess I really don't care. If people know what I'm buying on Amazon. You know, I. I buy some I buy some weird stuff, but honestly, if somebody wants to spend the time and effort to um, search through all the different stuff that I buy online, probably the easiest thing to do would be to just email me and ask me what I've been buying lately, and I'll probably tell you. Mm. So, technologies such as PGP and uh, encrypted SMS are, are those things that do you think those will become more mainstream as people become more aware of privacy as technology tends to break down what little privacy we have left? I, I don't think that they're going to become. I don't think they're going to become mainstream. Um, you know, they they've managed to not become mainstream for a long time. We saw that the the social reaction to Edward Snowden's um, disclosures about uh, monitoring by the police state um, was a great big yawn. I mean, everybody was much more interested in Kim Kardashian's butt than the fact that the uh, constitutional guarantees regarding privacy were, have been utterly and consistently violated in a systematic way by the government, um, which is, you know, it's interesting, right? I mean, you know, uh, Emperor Nixon, uh, sorry, President Nixon was forced to abdicate because of privacy violations during during the Watergate era. And now we see something vastly worse than that. And everybody just kind of shrugged. So one way of looking at it is that, that we, the people, have spoken 
And um, our response is that privacy just really, you know, honestly doesn't seem to concern us a whole lot. And, you know, again, back to back to that issue. I mean, there are situations where we need privacy from the government Um, that particularly comes towards things like, you know, I guess uh, the war on drugs. And and we saw we saw society's response to that issue in Colorado where marijuana was legalized. And, and that's actually, that's the way to do it, which is to, to decriminalize, decriminalize, depoliticize things that otherwise might be private. You know, uh, one of the other things that would drive privacy would be, you know, let's say, let's say I was, uh, I was gay and, and I was trying to do that secretly. Well, if we make it so that socially, I can, I can, I can be whatever sexuality I am without anybody snickering at me, except for my, you know, my, my partner, um, then maybe I don't need privacy about that either. Maybe I can just go, woohoo, look at me. I do what I want to do. That's really where I think we should be going. That's where I think we should be targeting our efforts. Is it normalizing and decriminalizing things that, that probably shouldn't be criminalized and that shouldn't be in the closet? Interesting. Um, so, Mark, it's kind of it's shifting gears a little bit. Um, how has technology impacted our ability to monitor the government and vice versa? It seems like privacy is a two-way street, and you have kind of an interesting take on on this. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one. Um, I I believe that, uh, well, if you want to take a kind of a utilitarian perspective on this stuff, what we're basically saying is we're saying that um, – the you know the 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 idea in the, embodied in the Fourth Amendment that somebody would need to get a warrant in order to search my stuff um, from from a legal standpoint um, that's built into the that's built into the the body of law because the founding fathers of the United States were a bunch of smugglers who were actually concerned you know smugglers and revolutionaries who were actually concerned about things like search and seizure because they would have gotten hung for being treasonous or uh, they would have been fined for fined for smuggling so that's why those things are built into that but if we take a if we take the utilitarian perspective what we say is we say that we grant society the ability to protect itself from criminality um, through these laws. And we also would acknowledge that the reason we let somebody be searched with a warrant is because we have identified that person as possibly more threatening to society. And therefore, will, society is willing to abrogate that person's rights to some degree under some sort of control. So what we then say is we say that the people who are the most dangerous are the people who should be most subject to monitoring. The people who are the most likely to cause damage to society are the people whose privacy rights should be the most strongly impacted. So I would say that all politicians should be wearing, uh, should be subject to public 24-7 surveillance. It completely makes sense. And all police officers, I mean, after all, society has given a police officer the the right and duty to carry a deadly weapon in society's name to possibly deploy it. We absolutely have a right to make sure that that's being done correctly. And then the other way of looking at it is to say, perhaps we should also have 24-7 ubiquitous surveillance on the wealthy, because one of the things we've seen with the Koch brothers and uh, Michael Bloomberg and, and whatnot is that the wealthy have moved into politics as well in order to to cement their oligarchic control over society. So perhaps what we should do is we should say that if you're, you know, a, a significant political contributor, that you should also be subject to 24-7 surveillance. Um, of course, that's not going to happen, right? Because they don't want that. Um, and they're the people who really run society. Um, you know, so, yeah, 
I mean, if you, you can throw it both ways, right? I mean, the, one of the tropes that came a lot um, during the, the Ed Snowden disclosures was um, what do you need to hide if you, what are you afraid of if you're, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything that you have to hide. You know, you can turn that around and throw that right back at the surveillance state. You can say, um, well, if you politicians are behaving, you've got nothing to hide, right? The fact that the politicians are so deeply concerned about, um, about their privacy is not because their privacy is essential to legislation in an ostensible democracy. In fact, privacy on the part of lawmakers in a democracy is a farce. That everything is ostensibly being done in our name. It should be open. None of these people should have any privacy at all. Try floating that one by them and see what they say. <laughs> Did uh, any of our other hosts have questions for, uh, for Marcus? Uh, no, maybe something a little prescriptive, but nothing else. But, uh, I, Marcus, I did hear you got to, uh, spend some time with one of my dear friends and coworkers, Mr. Thomas Liston, uh, the other day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah he commented to us that, uh, you guys may be breaking some IETF rules or something about two, uh, legends of the internet being in the same vehicle. Um, I, be I believe I told him that, uh, that that was not the case because there was only one god and one legend in the same vehicle, and I'll let you two figure out who's who. <laughs> well, we, we're, we're, we're still negotiating to see if we can get a, a tour, a guided tour of the motor pool out at, uh, out at Warner Brothers. Um, so, yeah, we, we're hoping we can both kind of get in the Batmobile or something like that. <laughs> cross your fingers, cross your yeah, now so that would go to the legend god thing because who's going to ride shotgun and who's going to be That's in the right. driver's seat, right? That's right. Who's the who's the Robin to the Batman? We would change chairs. <laughs> no, there can in. be two. There can be two. There can be two. And and, and you got to get special underwear too, right? Because of course, you know, well, you got to wear it on the outside of your. Well, I don't in know, the interest like, of you know, in the interest of privacy, if you really want to see my underwear, we can arrange that. <laughs> in fact, we might be able to arrange that right Stand now. Stand up. <laughs> I'm actually wearing pants. Uh, sure, you. Yeah, it's a little early in the day for that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little early in the day for pants. Of course, it is. <laughs> it's it's ne it's never too early for pants, really. So, uh, so Marcus, uh, warrants are an interesting subject that we've talked about here on the show before and you know a couple of years ago there was a you know a big hoopla about if my laptop is encrypted do i have to give up the keys for for search and, and seizure what, what are your thoughts on wait, wait. that subject that's a that's a question for people like marcus and i because we're old enough to remember when they were used with some regularity instead of circumvented continuously right mm -hmm. that's right yeah pre-patriot yeah. act well, again, you know, again, war warrants were a matter of deep concern to our founding fathers because, I mean, the whole the whole Boston Tea Party was was surrounding a a tax problem because you had founding fathers like John Hancock, who were huge smugglers. And the British kept trying to the crown kept trying to figure out how to get its slice of the action. Um, and so they were very concerned to be able to prevent basically prevent government from being able to, to collect its taxes. Uh, the U.S. revolt was actually a, a kind of a kind of a tax revolt. Um, uh, we, I, I guess, the point is, if we're going to worry about um, protecting ourselves against the government, it only makes sense in the context of having some kind of a threat model. Then you can talk rationally about what it is that you're trying to protect yourself from, and and why. If I'm going to encrypt my laptop in order to protect my my email. Um, 
you know, okay, that's fine. I mean, but what am I trying to protect my email for? Why am I trying to protect my email? Who am I trying to protect it against? And then I can decide whether my government has any business looking at looking at my email. Now, if I'm doing some doing something illegal and that's why I want to protect my email, then it certainly makes sense. If I'm doing something profoundly boring, then I probably don't need to protect my email. Although I could just protect my email because I'm anti-government and I just want to make those guys work for a living. So, you know, that's that's another option. But I think one of the things we've seen um, quite conclusively is that uh, that the government is not concerned with the rights that it has ostensibly granted you. If if you're going to make them go to the trouble of getting a warrant, they're going to go to huge expense and trouble to come up with reasons why your warrant protections don't count or don't matter. And even if you, you know. Um, a, a little known thing is that I invented the term rubber hose cryptanalysis, right? I mean, if your crypto system is so good that they can't get around it, they will waterboard you until you give up the keys because, you know, waterboarding isn't torture, right? Uh, they'll come up with that kind of crap. Um, so you need to figure out what it is you're trying to defend yourself against and why. And, um, Honestly, I think a lot of these kinds of intrusions into people's ability to carry on communication that's protected from the government are part of a pre-positioning against um, a long-term a long-term collapse. When you see a society where the division between the wealthy and powerful and the rest of society becomes sufficiently great, then the wealthy and the powerful militarize the forces of law and order because they're they're literally beginning to get a creepy feeling that the pitchforks and torches mm. thing might be getting ready to happen. Mm. Um, and so one of the reasons why, I mean, first off, it's horrifying when you see American police dressed with better gear than soldiers are carrying in Afghanistan. That that should be horrifying when you see that kind of lethal force being deplo deployed in, in a town full of civilians. It's also a war crime. But when you see that kind of thing being deployed, um, that should make you worried. Be, not simply because it can be used against you, because it, it indicates that those who rule your society have decided that the situation is becoming sufficiently unbalanced, that you may become a threat to them to that level. They're not stupid, right? They're not stupid. They're realizing that the, the degree of inequality that they've built into the society is eventually going to provoke some kind of revolution. And if you think back towards um, what the American South was like when slaveholding was still allowed. You know, there was a lot of social con constructs in place to deal with slave rebellions. That's kind of where we're heading again. Yahoo. Sorry if I'm being a depressing guy first thing in the morning. No, I'm, I want to say you want a revolution. I wanted to shift gears and talk a little about uh, how many of us are sitting here thinking about how do I not become the next Sony and maybe what advice you have for them. Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the thing there is, is um, uh, from everything I've been able to learn about what, what appears to be happening there is that in a few situations, convenience trumps security fairly consistently. And that's not that's not a great idea. Um, it sounds like there were passwords being exchanged via email. It sounds like the email systems may not have had adequate controls on them. It, and it sounds like they had uh, insufficient controls over privilege escalation and not much internal segmentation. And so when you when you take those factors and you put them in an environment where 
where you've got a very large network, then you have a situation where all it takes is one person opening opening a piece of malware, um, and you've got this instant cascade effect where everybody becomes very vulnerable. Um, it seems to me that that's what's happening. So I, I the recommendation I would make is as you're looking at your systems and your network design, you want to you want to ask yourself, what can I do to design this so that there are there are hurdles that are going to slow down a ripple effect cascading failure? What can I do to make it so that if you're able to get on my network, that you're also not able to immediately get local, local administrator um, and not immediately able to get into my domain controllers and not immediately able to get into my routers and switches? You know, so you should have different levels internally um, and design around uh, design around having hurdles on those different levels. And of course, you know, people are going to complain and say, oh, but it's hard. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't see what about spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars like Sony is doing is exactly easy. And that's really the, the downside of making this trade-off wrong. Yeah, no, it's a great point because when we as security professionals say, well, you need to harden your domain controllers, you need to prevent privilege escalation, you need to have network segmentation. I think a lot of times the reaction, and Jop, you can attest to this, you can see your head nod, right, is, oh, I, don't, I don't need that level of security. Like, that's not yeah. going to happen to me. Yeah. You, you know, I think it's um, it, it's like that in any one of these topics, you know, Marcus uh, uh, alluded to in the privacy realm either. It doesn't become important to people until they get hurt. And when they get hurt bad, then all of a sudden they're going, well, you know, A, why wasn't this done? You know, why were our eyes closed? Why? You know, why haven't we actually acted on this? But, uh, and you know, it costs them a lot of money, right? In Sony's case, it costs them a lot of money. A lot of these big breaches costing a hell of a lot of money to clean up. And suddenly they're getting wise. And it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs to be, be in that reactive place uh, and, when you could have done so much better. Yeah, it's suddenly getting wise, but it's, it's also, I mean, we have this, this uh, uh, habit as a society to have a very short attention span. I mean, I've been yep. to I've been to dozens, if not hundreds, of companies in my consulting career the last twenty years, and I don't think Sony, from what I've heard, is is any different than most of the companies I've been to internally. Mm. Most companies kind of shrug and say, "We've got the perimeter controls, the crunchy exterior, you know, it's good enough until something bad happens. Right. And something bad <laughs> happens, the attention's focused for a while, but after a while." Well, it drifts off, and drifts and, off. and and what what uh, what Marcus was also saying there was convenience often trumps security, and even always, with even always trumps. Security. Well, it does, right? And even with the with the best intent, people often do start out with very very solid designs. They do their due diligence, especially right after they they've been hurt. But as time goes on, like you said, it drifts away, and and that convenience trumps security every time, and then they fall back into that state where. Yeah, it's a little yeah. different application, but I think it's something most of us relate to. I, I was thinking about it when I flew up here yesterday. I remember pre-9-11, because I, I travel a lot, my, my commute was mostly to the airport. Before 9-11, I had it down to a science. I could leave my house one hour before the de scheduled departure time, get to the airport, get parked, get through security, get to the gate, get on the plane, boom. After 9-11... That, that one hour process was bumped to two, two and a half hours because of all the extra security processes that were put in place. And yesterday, as I got ready to come up here, and it was a slow travel day, whatever, but from the time I left my house to the time I was at the gate, and this is, in, this is including parking at an offsite parking lot, getting a shuttle bus in, it was like 45 minutes. 
and I, I and I thought to myself yesterday, you know, I'm almost back to that hour mm-hmm. uh, threshold again for getting through the airport. There's a lot of security in place, but right. gradually over time, it's been relaxed, it's been streamlined, and people have become numb to it. Well, and, you must be and, TSA pre-check, right? I am not. Uh, no, well, I, I was about not. to mention the same thing. And if you want, you can pay for the privilege to have five years worth of uh, pre-check sure. for giving up some of your privacy. No, right? I took yeah. my shoes off. I took my belt off. I did my pockets. Did the full body massage. But, but the, 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 the challenge with TSA pre is that in an effort to expedite flow in airports, they are now randomly, air quotes, randomly, throwing non-TSA pre people into the TSA pre line, mm-hmm. right? which dramatically yeah. slows it because they're still taking off their shoes and, you know, right. So, uh, suddenly your paid for privilege disappears. So the, as long as, as long as you're white, you can go through there, right? That's basically what's going to happen with that. I, so one of the more, things that I've found that's interesting on, on opt and being enhanced air interrogation, my son tends to get hit all the time. He's a single male, but he's white Late twenties, male, and so and it, it talking to his friends that is similar. I don't know how many of our listeners. I mean, several of our listeners are fall into that category. I don't know if your experience of being young white male, clearly safe, you get picked a lot. And my ah. somewhat cynical thought is, for you know, every young white male that they do, that means they can uh, profile someone based on. Um, what you would expect them to do, and it doesn't look like they're the profiling. normal profiling, <clears throat> right? So wrong, it doesn't wrong, look wrong, like they're yeah. Wrong threat model. They're looking for <laughs> drugs. <laughs> oh, see, I'm, I'm, now, not, I'm some, not joking. I'm yeah. not joking. I'm not joking. They're but, looking for drugs. Oh, they got to have something to fits, do while they're on shift, right? But he fits. He fits. He fits the threat model of, of a of a drug user because actually it's you know it's privileged white males who can afford the drugs, so they're looking for that as well. I, I, just, I, one of the things you'll see is that fairly consistently terrorism has been the camel's nose under the edge right. of the tent in order to drive, um, you know, all intrusions into the individuals uh, individual sphere. And that includes finding out, you know, what substances they're ingesting, finding out about their sexuality. You know, everything falls under the rubric of whatever excuse we can use to get your kimono open so that we can serve you. Speaking of speaking of kimonos, if I can, yeah, go ahead. yeah, go ahead, Marcus. If I if I can kind of jump back to the the, the, the Sony question though, because there's an important point about this. I, I think we can learn a lot from this. And the, the things that we should learn is we should take a look at the individual control points of what is going wrong at Sony and ask ourselves, self, if that happened to me, what do I have in place that would allow me to be able to walk that cat back particularly efficiently? So if we had somebody who was inside of our network, would they be able to exfiltrate? 100 terabytes of data fairly quickly. I mean, I know my data rates, that's not an issue for me. But you need, So you need to look at that. Would we be able to tell where that came from? Would we be able to tell these things? And so essentially, um, a, a great big disaster like Sony becomes a blueprint for a self-assessment about our own security practices and our own fallback positions in case something goes wrong. And the situations where you see um, huge, massive 
arterial bleeding happening are kind of the, the situations like the, the unsinkable Titanic, where, you know, all of the compartments get hold at once. Well, you know, if you've built your boat, so that, that is probably a horrible analogy, but I'm, I'm going to roll with it since I'm started. You know, if you build your boat so there's no internal compartments, you have built a boat that is designed to behave like the Titanic did when it had its one compartment. You know, its compartments penetrated. You know, so what we need to do is is use experiences like what's happening at Sony as a case study for how to redesign our internal controls. It might not be a bad uh, model, Marcus, because uh, the Titanic had internal segmentation. It did. And it, it did. And then, you know, it doesn't, internal segmentation doesn't always work. Yep. <laughs> but and, it, and, it, it, and it doesn't work if you put, if you don't actually, like, close the doors, which is what I, I'm sure all of us have seen many times. Our network is segmented but not effectively. So all it does is make it inconvenient and you whack your head running from one room to another or oh, your, your packets get an extra bump in the I wire. Think we're or, on or, yeah, or my network, my, our network is segmented and by segmented, they mean VLANs with IP any, any yeah. between them all. We're just limiting broadcast domains. And 10 year old switch gear, which still, uh, <laughs> and it makes VLAN hopping easy. Right? Yeah, Marcus, right. I have a, a very important series of questions. Oh, here we go. Are you Uh-oh. ready oh, no. to play five okay, questions? Okay. Shifting gears. With Security Weekly. Sure. <laughs> Three words to describe yourself. Uh, sleepy, grumpy, getting old. If That's you were four. a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Boredom. <laughs> if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Myself. In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? <laughs> oh, that's an, that's an appropriate answer. We'll take it. <laughs> I'm stunned. I, I that's classified. I, 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 that's classified. That was, that was awesome. I thought you you would let us know anything you we we could ask you. He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't care. You're an open book. Marcus. You're an open book. Yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go first. Okay, uh, Marcus, <laughs> choose two celebrities to be your parents. Two celebrities who are parents. Well, probably Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Oh, there you go. Very nice. Because they're both rich and pretty. Yeah. (laughs) But they're your parents. Marcus, thank you very much for appearing on Security Weekly. Uh, Safe travels home, my friend, and enjoy your your holiday break. I know you said you had a break in your travel schedule, so. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Marcus. With that, we're going to take a short break, come back, and get on our next interview with Billy Rios. Uh, thanks again to Marcus, and uh, we're going to take a short break and like do stuff like go to the bathroom and get more drinks. And My cup is empty. Yeah. There's, there's another the Bloody Mary, and I can start shifting to other not things. Empty. Excellent. <laughs> we'll be right back. And we're back. Welcome back to Security Weekly, episode 400, doing this in support of EFF. You can go to wiki.securityweekly.com. And go to episode 400, click on the link to donate to EFF and see our schedule for today. This next interview is sponsored by the Sands Institute, the most trusted source for computer security training, certification, and research. Visit sands.org to learn more. Our interview for this segment is none other than Billy Rios. And Billy, I apologize about the title, but I called this segment Secure and Internet of Things in the Same Title. I know that kind of sucks. I apologize. Everybody drink. Everybody drink. (laughs) Welcome back to the show, Billy. Oh, I can't hear Billy. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. What's going on, brother? Um, 
So, yeah, thanks for coming back. Um, it's great to have you here. I hear that uh, you've been doing some teaching for SANS, so we get to hang out at the SANS ICS Summit, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, and I wanted to ask you about my favorite topic to talk about on the show. Well, close to my favorite topic. Uh, drinks and cigars <laughs> and that kind of stuff is pretty fun to talk about, too, as well as security in general. But I really like to focus on embedded device security. And, Billy, you're... Uh, well known for doing research in this area. And it seems to me, after doing this for nine years with my fellow cohorts, that embedded device vulnerabilities seems to be getting worse, not better. <laughs> is that, is that, yeah, I, do you agree with that? I think we, uh, we have a long ways to go uh, with embedded devices, that's for sure. So, I, I mean, we should not be able to run strings on a, a firmware file or bin file and find hard-coded usernames and hard-coded certificates inside that file, right? I, I would hope that we have moved past those types of vulnerabilities. Uh, I know the rest of the, the IT world has definitely moved past those types of things. Uh, hard-coded backdoor usernames and passwords. Um, you know, I think a lot of more mature software manufacturers, uh, we don't do those types of things anymore, right? And so you could say that from a security standpoint, uh, we are take, taking a step back, maybe 10 steps back. Uh, but you know, I think it's important to understand that a lot of these devices do really cool things, right? So, uh, and some of them are going to change the way that we live our lives. Mm. And so um, there's kind of a challenge, I think, that a lot of folks are kind of encountering where they want to balance the innovation, uh, they want to balance, you know, the, the speed to market uh, against security. And I think right now security is kind of losing that battle. So uh, hopefully we can inject ourselves into that process and get some sanity from a security standpoint on, on some of these devices. Is it better in some areas? I know... When you were at Silence, you did a lot of research into medical devices. Um, recently, you started looking at um, screening devices, airport screening devices. Are there certain industries where things have gotten better? Um, no. <laughs> uh, looking at the yeah, looking at the medical looking at the medical industry, uh, they have a really long ways to go, and they have a lot of challenges, right? I mean, I'll tell you a real challenge that some folks are facing. Uh, you know, let's say you want a device in the operating room um, and you can't put a complex password on that thing, right? If a, if a surgeon has to get something out of a, a drawer or has to turn on a device uh, in an emergency situation, uh, they may have rubber gloves on their hand, right? They may not have the extra 20 seconds it needs to type in uh, a password to a screen someplace. Um, <clears throat> it's, just not, it's just not an alternative for them, right? So uh, they're in a, in a pretty tricky situation. Same with implantables, right? If, uh, if there's a device... Uh, that's inside of somebody, uh, the update story becomes a really, really important story, right? Because you need to have a lot of quality in that update story and uh, how people can update those things or access those things and what it takes. And, you know, if, if someone in a critical situation, like in an emergency room, needs to get data, uh, the last thing they want to do is have to turn to their colleague and ask them if they remember the password for something, right? right. Do you remember the password for the defibrillator, or uh, or they fat finger it, you know, twenty times while they're while they're trying to get this thing energized? Yeah, so, Jack was telling yeah. me he likes to update his hearing aid rectally. I'm not sure. If that, <laughs> I don't know how that makes sense, but that's, don't I, say I, that I think when that's I've got the safest way because when you, when you try to update something in that way, uh, you're definitely going to understand every step of the process, yeah. and you're going to understand I mean, where that, your exposures are. I mean, right? That, for those for those wondering, for those wondering. Wondering, uh, I've made it until eleven fourteen to issue my first f bomb. Fuck you, Paul. <laughs> there it is. You know what? It, it took longer than we thought. Yeah, really. yeah. I, I get that a lot. It was nothing age related. Yeah. It was mainly related. Interesting. Uh, Talk about a back door. Anyway, 
Yeah, oh. exactly. <laughs> and that's hard coded, man. You can't get rid of that one. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> so, Billy, have you met with uh, manufacturers of these devices and asked them why or have any inclination as to why their security model is from the 1980s? Or 90s, yeah, maybe? I, yeah, I definitely have. I'll, I mean, I'll tell you a story about the backdoor passwords and why they're there. So, um, and this is something important to understand, even in IoT, right? Not just medical or critical infrastructure, but uh, you know, when you're let, let's take a really easy example. Let's say you're a bank uh, and you want to install some really cool HVAC environmental controls for your corporate headquarters, so everyone can be very comfortable. Uh, you are not going to tell your bank teller your employee to install that for you. Uh, you're going to hire someone to install that for you. And that that organization that you hire is what we refer to as an integrator. Uh, and so it's basically a third party that's going to install these devices and systems into your infrastructure. Um, and so they're also going to be the people that you call when something goes wrong. So if that thing breaks, if your HVAC system breaks for your corporate headquarters, uh, you're likely going to call someone to come fix that. Uh, and those people that come to fix those devices, uh, they need access to those devices. And so instead of trying to find the right person or trying to find the password log or trying to maintain uh, you know, some type of really cool authentication to get access to these devices, the easiest way for them to regain access to the device to do administration or maintenance is to just hard code or username and password into these devices. And so uh, that's, why we, that's why we see that you know, these types of issues are more prevalent when it comes to the IoT and embedded. And I'm telling you right now, uh, this is gonna happen in the commercial space too. You know, when you wanna buy the really cool home automation system for your house that does a lot of really cool things, it's likely you're going to hire someone to come install that for you, unless you're really good at cutting out sheetrock and, and wiring things up. So, but I think most of the people are not comfortable doing that. So they're going to hire someone to install these systems. And hopefully uh, we don't see the same security practices where the integrator just says, hey, look, we want to make this simple. We want our technicians to be able to log into these things quickly to do administration and maintenance. So we're just going to hard code our usernames and passwords into the devices. No, that, I had never thought of it that way. That's, that's an excellent example. Um, what about the other some of the security problems that we see, such as vulnerable code, buffer overflows, um, you know, clear text protocols? You know, that, that doesn't necessarily need to be there for maintenance, right? But in my experience, embedded systems have these vulnerabilities as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, some things are just the nature of the beast. And we have to find new, I think, creative ways to address uh, things like credentials, right? Um, 15, 20 character passwords inside the operating room where someone may have a glove on their hand or may not be able to get to a keyboard. Uh, that's something that we have to overcome that's very specific to specific situations. But you're absolutely right. You know, uh, buffer overflows, you know, inside of a web server, embedded web server, that's not acceptable. There's, there's no reason to have that. Uh, clear text protocols, you know, we know how to do this already. We've solved these problems yeah. uh, in other places in the industry already. Uh, we shouldn't have to resolve these problems again in the embedded world. So knowing that the differences when we're dealing with a really specific situation uh, that's harder to fix because of certain circumstances and knowing when we're not dealing with those types of situations and just fixing bugs uh, that the IT world has fixed 20 years ago, that's an important distinction to be able to make. And uh, I think that's probably the first place that we should start. Those are easy fixes, easy wins. It, you know, you brought up an interesting point, Billy, that I wanted to ask you about in terms of the embedded web server that's on these devices. It seems to me that that's usually contains some vulnerability in some way, shape, or form. Either it's in the web application itself or it's in the actual web server code itself. And in the IT world, we solved this problem with web frameworks, right? Like .NET actually has a really good security model. But when you go to the embedded systems, the web, you know, .NET doesn't run on these embedded devices. Neither does 
you know, any other kind of framework, like, God forbid, PHP, I don't think that would solve much. But um, so is there, a, do you know of anyone or have recommendations for what like web framework embedded systems can be using that fits on these small special purpose devices? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, that that's an important question. I, I think um, more importantly, we're never going to get it right in one shot, right? So yeah. even if we pick the best you know web framework available at the time, uh, that's that's a good that's a good position to be in, definitely. But that thing is not going to last twenty years in the security space, right? There's going to be bugs, there's going to be issues, and so more importantly, I think folks should ask themselves, hey, when we encounter a problem, how are we going to be able to fix this? And so. Uh, if the web framework that we rely upon has some issue that we discovered, you know, Heartbleed or whatever else you want to call whatever bug, right? Like, um, how do we fix that? How do we update these things in a safe way, uh, in a way that's not going to take down the device or cause interruption to whatever it's supporting? And so, a uh, really good question. Uh, a lot of folks I see, they just roll their own, right? They just yeah, create their own web too. server. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know why someone would do that. Uh, but even if they did... Uh, they have to understand how they're going to update that thing because most of the code that we see, once it's put on the device, it's there. Uh, it doesn't get touched. It doesn't get changed. Uh, it's very much a cultural issue, I think, with embedded engineers where it's working. Don't mess with it. You know, it's not broken. Yeah, just let it run. Uh, we, we can't have that mentality, right? We're not going to get it right in one shot. It's, it's impossible to do that in security. And so understanding how we're going to fix this thing once an issue is discovered is probably more important than uh, trying to decide which framework we're going to use from the start. Yeah, so Billy, what can we do to, I mean, we could talk about the problem at length, right? But what can we do to raise awareness, especially, let's start with raising awareness amongst manufacturers of these devices. What can we do to raise awareness and, and arm them with the processes and tools they need to make a secure system? I guess first we have to convince them that they need to make something that's secure and add security in their process, right? right? Yeah, I mean, I think um, th that's pretty challenging, right? I, I, the, the problem is, uh, I think, when we look at the embedded space, uh, some of the problems that we encounter are that, you know, we are dealing with engineers, right? And so we're all, we all have engineering mindsets. We all have, like, curiosity. And, you know, I'm pretty sure if we wanted to, we could probably all sit down and take a couple weeks and create some really cool embedded devices or, you know, whatever you want to call IoT or whatever. So um, these people are usually pretty technical, uh, and they, a lot of times they've been doing this for a really long time. And so uh, breaking into that culture may be a little different than some of the other cultures. So, uh, but I think it's, it's, you bring up a good point. I think it's important to focus on you know, how these things are different, not only from a vulnerability standpoint, but there are things we can do in the embedded world that we can't do in the regular IT world, right? So for example, uh, we can understand every single process that's going to be launched on certain embedded devices, every single one, right? It's, a, it's definitely a finite state. Um, these are not, you know, consumer PCs that people are using where they're allowed to install anything that they want. Uh, an infusion pump is designed to run a certain set of processes, has a certain set of files on there. Uh, those files came from the manufacturer. Uh, nothing else is supposed to be installed or running on that pump, right? And so we can use that to our advantage. We can't do that for a Dell laptop. We can't do that for a MacBook. Uh, we have no idea what a user is going to install or what they're going to do or how they're going to change configuration for that. But for a lot of embedded devices, we don't have to worry about that sort of stuff. And so that's actually an advantage. We can use that to build some pretty innovative security solutions, I think. Hey, I have a related question for you, and it's one that I, I flip back and forth on, which is Microsoft has been making this big push for using, brace yourself, Windows for IoT. Windows XP embedded. No, not XP, but using oh. a modern. And my first reaction is that goes completely against the logic of, what Billy was talking about, you know, go back a few years and the, the answer was use QNX. And it's like, no, we're going to run NT. It's like, no, use QNX. We're going to run NT. 
But the flip side of it, and where Microsoft has a point, is that in some classes of things, manageability is critical. And the management infrastructure around Windows devices um, is significant. And I see an argument there. I'm not sure I buy it, but considering how rarely special purpose devices, PLCs, and things like that are, are app updated, even where we have the opportunity to, to push out secure code, um, I, I wonder if there's a trade-off there. Uh, I, it, you know, the answer, I'm sure, is nuanced. But what are your thoughts on that, Billy? Where does management fit in, and is where does the the added complexity of ease of management offset or does it offset the simplicity? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, I think we kind of dug this uh, grave by ourselves, right? So if we look at a lot of IoT devices and PLCs and building automation systems, there is no management. There's none, zero, right? So uh, if you want to see all the users on your facility automation systems, you have to log into all the facility automation systems and, and get a user list, right? And so that's horrible. And um, because we've kind of put ourselves in that situation, uh, people are going to present themselves with saying, hey, we have this management capability, right? And so whether Microsoft's the right place to do this, I'm not sure. And, uh, and um, to be honest, I don't think security engineers are going to uh, drive that to market, right? It's really going to be folks that are uh, investing really heavily in creating some of these devices or creating uh, you know, these cool offerings. So, but uh, with that said, there has to be a way to manage these things, right? So when um, when you're a corporation and you're buying the cool little conference room schedulers that go on the wall of every conference room to tell you whether it's occupied or not, uh, and do you know where that do you know where that data comes from? It's coming from your Exchange server, right? Uh, and if it's coming from your Exchange server, it's got domain creds on it, right? And so um, and if that thing is just sitting there by itself and not managed in any way, you have a clear tech set of domain credentials sitting like on some random device in your network, right? And so, and that's something we've definitely seen before. Uh, when we when we talk about situations like that and show people situations like that, uh, it makes them nervous, right? And so they they want to have a way to manage that. And if we can bring a good management solution to manage IoT devices, I think it would go a long way. Uh, hopefully, we don't get tied into one specific vendor or anything like that. Uh, hopefully, it's it's a little more open, but uh, it's definitely something that people need for sure. And we'll see you know, who steps up to try to address that. Well, it's interesting. One of the gaps that I see in the uh, IoT or embedded space is the update process. For most, majority of devices that I see, the update process sucks. And what you said before, Jack, about Microsoft making an embedded operating system, to me, Microsoft's update process doesn't suck as much as it doesn't embed. I mean, it's they are, doesn't, but embedded they, systems they, they aren't are, typically getting. They updated. are the, the right. as as much as they've had issues yeah. with updates lately. They are the world's largest software distributor. Yeah, their update system with their distribution partners is great. They did have uh, the, the issue with Flame, which has been resolved, and that's. Right. I mean, I that's the a, terror. There's a cream for that that you probably are. <laughs> There, the, I mean, the, the, the terror scenario. An anal comment, and he yeah. might get an F bomb. Uh, that's right. F bomb um, number two. Uh, <laughs> oh, it, it takes me longer to recover and be able to do that again. Um, so, <laughs> and, the, and you can tell Jack's been drinking Bloody Marys. Yeah, it's the it's yeah. Anyway, hey, so Billy. So back to um, back to yeah, Billy. Back we, to Billy. We, we, let's, he, I he, wanted he to ask you this. about the update <laughs> process for firm, firmware. You seem to have uh, kind of alluded to that the update process is very important. Um, are there good examples of vendors doing it right? And then what are some horrific examples about 
like firmware not even being able to be updated? Yeah, I think most of the examples are pretty bad. Um, I know one specific example um, for a medical device, a really cool medical device, but I, I can't uh, say exactly who it was. But um, most of the most of the time, what we're asking folks, you know, when we think of IoT and embedded and all this other stuff, critical infrastructure, you know, things like supply chain level attacks start to come into play. And you know, I've talked to some folks, and they said. How are you going to do analysis against supply chain attacks when we can't even tell whether or not you have a really known good firmware, right? Um, I don't think I've ever seen signed firmware. Actually, I take that back. There's there's one device made by Rockwell that I know of that has signed firmware. Yeah, there's uh, but a couple of devices. Other than that, that have I haven't seen. Firmware. Yeah, I haven't seen anything yeah, in the real world that has signed, right. right? Yep. So we have a long ways to go. I mean, if we cannot simply down download or get signed firmware that has some assurance from a vendor or a way to check it before we install it on a device, uh, we have a lot of problems, right? A lot of the firmware update facilities are made to are made available to unauthenticated users. That's pretty common in the embedded world for some reason, right? So um, most of the checking that's done on embedded devices are just simple checksums to make sure that, uh, you know, that the firmware is going to work on the, on the, on the chip that it's going to be uh, installed into. So uh, we definitely have a long ways to go for that. But here's where I think we can get some really easy wins, right? Um, just signing that thing so people can verify that it actually came from the manufacturer or the vendor as opposed to just rolling the dice and hoping that it came from them. Uh, maintaining repositories of you know, known good. Uh, you know, there's only a finite number of firmwares out there. Uh, it's not like it's you know, a, huge, uh, a huge number that's unmanageable. We can definitely track every, every piece of firmware that someone has created uh, and get people information so they can verify that before they install it on their devices. because. Once it's on the device, it's really hard to verify. Uh, in fact, I don't know if there's a way that we can scale verification of firmware on devices, right? So uh, let's not put ourselves in that situation. Let's not dig that grave for ourselves. Uh, let's get ahead of that problem and solve it, because I think we can get some easy wins there. Joss, did you, could you, yeah, you want to say something? I, I do. I actually have a question. Now I can um, see you because you're here with me. It's wonderful. I know. Yeah, isn't it? It's I so can, good to see you. I can smell Give him a hug. Oh, we'll, we'll hug <laughs> later. We'll hug later. Ask your question. My, my question was this, uh, Billy. Uh, <laughs> earlier on, you, you had alluded to challenges in the embedded system space, and you know, especially medically with, with uh, authentication and authorization and, you know, sort of this password problem, which we're, we're all, all dealing with actually throughout the industry. But my question is this, are you seeing biometrics make an entry into the authentication space in the embedded systems? And, and, and how do you feel about that if you are? You mentioned that with the rubber gloves. Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't seen any biometrics, but you know what I have seen is proximity. And so um, I know in the medical space, there's a lot of healthcare organizations that are considering proximity. So if a doctor is close, you know, via a radio frequency or something like that, if they're close to the device, the device will consider them authenticated. And uh, I think that's a good example of someone saying, hey, look, this is our situation. Um, you know, the traditional you know, type of password in, isn't, isn't going to work? What else can we do? And are there risks with that? Of course there are. But uh, I think for, you know, specific circumstances or specific situations, it's probably a good, it's probably a good solution. Right. So uh, and, and rolling that out and maintaining it and managing it, it it's, it's a little more straightforward, I think, when you have a good a good solution like that. So I haven't seen too much as far as biometrics go, but I have seen uh, proximity. I've seen that at some organizations as well uh, in the IT world. I thought that was pretty effective. You know, I worked at an organization where uh, in order to check check in code to production, you know, which is a pretty important thing. Uh, you had to basically be sitting at a computer, right? Because it would uh, basically uh, check proximity via a device that people, developers had to carry around. So uh, it can offer a lot of benefits. 
Uh, we'll see we'll see uh, how far it goes if it ever gets into the biometric space. That'd be pretty interesting as well. Uh, and in some cases, it's not going to work, right? If you're in a if you're in an operating room and you have goggles on and you know and, and gloves on uh, and a mask on, right? Um, biometrics may fall down in those types of situations, but sure. um, yeah. in other cases, it may work. Yeah. yeah I think so, your proximity comments that that's a good one, uh, and I think that's a reasonably good solution. Hopefully, it's well implemented in the cases right. that you've seen. But. Yep. That, yeah. And now that said, proximity stuff. Do you start putting RF in an operating room, and is that bad? It, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Does your exactly. RFID yep. tag still work? Yes. That's that's pretty amazing. We should have played that video during the break. <laughs> <laughs> Drive everyone away for the afternoon, yeah, huh? right? Um, so, Billy, what, what's the real threat? I, I'm reading these articles that are briefing CIOs about what they really are concerned about or what they should be concerned about in terms of this Internet of Things threat. And one of, some of the articles I've read, they highlight uh, these things, such as Bluetooth devices in the boardrooms and fitness bands as something that CISOs should be worried about as a threat to their organization. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean... You're laughing, so I, I, I kind of... Yeah, I, I, I am laughing, right? So, um, you know, this, this is definitely a danger, right? Like, uh, you know, we, don't, we definitely don't want to overstate what the risk is, right? We want to help people understand what the risk is. And, you know, I think today, if I had to go talk to someone, you know, and then talk about this specific issue... I would talk to them basically about how IoT and embedded devices in their corporate network offer pivot points. Yeah. You know, so and that's something that I think a lot of people understand. It's pretty easy for them to conceptualize when you show them a text file that has domain creds inside of the conference room scheduler that's on in front of their conference yeah. room that's yep. network yep. enabled, right? Done so, done uh, yep. and we've also showed people that hey, look, you know, sometimes the integrator that you know wanted to do remote access and management, they'll hook up these devices to like a DSL modem or a cable modem, uh, so they'll know where it's at and they can manage that thing a little better. And uh, that's a great exfiltration point, right? So all that money you've spent on endpoint protection and uh, proxy. And, and, and network inspection, uh, egress filtering, that goes out the window, right? Because uh, I'll just exfil everything out of this DSL modem that's hooked up to an ISP uh, that's not hooked up to your infrastructure, right? Pretty neat. So I think people are more who are more progressive, what we're trying to help them understand is uh, if the device has any kind of physical movement, if it moves at any kind, there's a lot of danger there, safety dangers. Uh, the medical world, pretty much you know, every device that we look at, class one devices, those could hurt people. You know, they, in, the, in the industry, they call that patient harm. Uh, the possibility for patient harm is very high. Uh, infusion pumps, you know, insulin pumps, I think as people have demonstrated, pacemakers, uh, those definitely have the capability to hurt people. Uh, on manufacturing now, floors. Wait, can, you, yeah. but can you assassinate someone like the vice president using a pacemaker <laughs> attack, though? That's the question, Billy. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, and I, this is probably one part of your drinking game here. So uh, I think as we've seen in Sony, you know, like we've looked at the technical pieces. Uh, it's probably very similar to what we've seen before. But I think what's what's really neat is that the motives, right? Not neat, but what's different. What's really different is the motives, right? And what they're willing to do. And uh, we see that, hey, look, there are people, we don't really understand their motives. And maybe their motives are to hurt a company, to harm a company. Right. To destroy a company, right? And so uh, that's one thing that I kind of see as different <clears throat> in the recent attacks that we've seen. Uh, and if, if people want to take that kind of mentality to places like healthcare, to manufacturing, to critical infrastructure, um, that's not a good position for us to be in as defenders, right? And so that's something that we definitely need to think about. Right now, I think most of the threats that we're dealing with here now today on people's networks uh, has really more to do about uh, escalation and, and IP theft and that sort of thing. But 
you know, I'm, I'm sure over the next couple of years, we're going to see more attacks like what we just saw over the last couple of weeks, where the motivation is to really hurt a company, to punish a company for some reason or another. Um, and that brings in, I think, a whole new realm of attacks and a whole new realm of possibilities. And that's an interesting point, Billy. We haven't really seen the catastrophic attacks happen in terms of embedded devices and Internet of Things where they've been attacked and caused harm, right? Like the whole power plant in Brazil was not a, a hack or something like that. Um, is that because there are other safeguards in place or like what's the reason for that? Um, well, this is what I tell folks, uh, mainly in the medical world. Uh, this is advice that I give them. Uh, the advice is let's not rely on the will, goodwill of strangers as our security policy or our security strategy, right? And so, um, you know, the reasons, the reasons that these things have not happened are not technical barriers. I can tell you that right now. They're not engineering barriers. Uh, I think the reason uh, that these things have not happened is because of the goodwill of strangers. <laughs> you know, and um, and that that's not a that's not a defensible position. That's not a good strategy. And so uh, we have to make it to where if someone does want to cause someone harm, if someone does want to destroy some process, uh, we have to make it hard for them from an engineering perspective. Uh, once someone decides to cross that line, and and we're definitely not there yet. And I think we'll you know. We'll see this over the next couple of years where uh, more and more of these things will come out and people will understand how to manipulate these processes in a much more uh, efficient way. And it's, it's, it's going to cause some organizations harm, right? And I know that um, publicly, if you go to DHS's website, you know, things like facility automation systems, they've been attacked already. You know, I know that someone has gained access to, to a manufacturing company on the East Coast. Uh, there's another uh, there's another threat actor who gained access to a state uh, a state agency on the East Coast as well. Um, you know, I've been on manufacturing plants where I've seen uh, people on networks that probably shouldn't have been there. So uh, it's definitely happened. Why someone hasn't taken it to the next level to cause someone harm or destroy a process? Uh, it's definitely not engineering barriers. Uh, it's really more about, you know, they, they don't feel like they should have to do that or maybe their motives aren't, aren't there. And uh, like I said, relying on the goodwill of a stranger as our security strategy, that's not, that's not a good strategy. Mm. No, I, I agree. Um, do you think for manufacturers of embedded systems, is it, is it, they need better software, better software processes? Like, can we attack this problem by getting them to build better software? Or does the problem just go way deeper than that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we can do um, from a manufacturing side that's, that's pretty poor. I'll, I'll give you an example of something that, um, that we're talking about in the medical device world, right? So uh, right now, most manufacturers... They can't tell you um, what every single file on the device should be. They can't tell you what open ports are, are accessible and why those those ports and services are available, right? And so uh, these are really simple things, right? Uh, they should be able to tell an organization, hey, uh, you just bought our infusion pump. These are the three ports you need to have open in order for this thing to run, right? We can't do that right now. And so, uh, and that's that's something that's easy for a manufacturer to do. That's very hard for an end user to do. Right. And so um, I think we should identify those places where this is really a manufacturing responsibility because it's easy for you to get this information as opposed to letting an end user do that. That's where I think a manufacturer responsibility should lie. And um, I got kind of a question, kind hey, of a follow on to Paul's Strand. question. Hey, John, how's it going, buddy? 
<laughs> doing better. Um, so, you know, we always hear about secure software, secure software. People got to write, st start writing secure software. Even if you could wave a magical wand today and all the software from here on out was being secured. In this particular area, that's not really a, a, a solution because a lot of the software is old already. It's ancient. And it's, you know, it's going to be continuing on for a long time because of the mentality of a, it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. At least that's what a lot of managers say. So how do you counter that when you're talking with your customers? you say this is old, out of date, dangerous, and they basically say, well, it's working. Yeah, that's a, I mean, this is a problem that I think every embedded manufacturer faces. And, uh, you know, what I always tell them is, hey, you know, this is the elephant, right? And we're trying to eat the elephant. Let's take it one bite at a time. And so I think what we should do is, it's, is just separate those into two different problems, right? There's a legacy problem of devices that are already installed, that are already horribly insecure, they're in manufacturing plants, they're in critical infrastructure, um, it's hard to go in and change those things. Uh, but there's new devices that are coming out all the time, right? And so let's not put those in the same category. We can definitely improve uh, the security and, and, the, and the posture and the resiliency of new devices coming out. We shouldn't let the old legacy problem affect new devices. And so uh, let's put the new devices in its own category. Let's start working on solutions for the new stuff. And then the old stuff, the legacy stuff, that, that requires a different approach. You're absolutely right. You know, we can't just tell manufacturers to make sweeping changes to old legacy code because it doesn't. Uh, it's, it's probably not going to be effective because no one's going to install those changes because, like you said, the process is working. Let's not mess with it. But more importantly, there's probably no business incentive for them to do that as well, right? So uh, two different problems. And I, and I hope that when we start to tackle these problems, we recognize that those are two different problems. And, uh, you know, they're not, they're not tied to each other in many ways. New devices, we can have much higher standards for. Old devices, we probably need to take a, a different view. And I think for the older devices, this is where a lot of responsibility gets pushed onto the end user, right? So if you own an, an old legacy embedded system of some kind, uh, it's pro it's going to be your responsibility to try to protect that thing and safeguard that thing as an end user. Um, you know, you're not going to. I don't think there's a lot that the manufacturer can do. You know, that bullet has left the chamber, uh, and it's in your organization, right? So now it's it's really up to you to kind of uh, develop the mitigation plan and, and security plan around that old device. Uh, do we need to start from the ground up or are there add-on solutions, Billy, that we can use to apply security to the uh, embedded world? Yeah, that, you know, that's a really good question. And um, to be honest, I think for any person in the security space, this is a great area to show some real entrepreneurship, right? To, some, to show some real innovation, because um, you know, in the IT space, I think we're starting to mature there. In the embedded space, we're definitely not. And so, um, if you're working on embedded products and you find yourself going through a process over and over again to verify firmware, to do forensics, to do network analysis, to do baselining, to do whatever, uh, that's a really good opportunity for you. Because I'm telling you, a lot of people need these solutions. Uh, there aren't very many solutions for the embedded space when it comes to security. And so. Um, you know, some people view that as a bad thing, but I view that as a good thing, right? A lot of smart minds can put uh, put some brain cells onto this problem and, and figure out how to solve some of this stuff. Uh, you know, is it as mature as I'd like it to be? Definitely not. But there's definitely a lot of opportunity for people trying to enter this space as far and as creating solutions and helping people. Will that hint to your next venture, perhaps? That you, want to, <laughs> that you want to say publicly? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I have a startup. Um, we're focused on embedded stuff, like primarily facility automation, building automation stuff. 
Um, you know, we do assessments and, and that sort of thing against embedded devices. Um, we're also looking at industrial control systems. I mean, I, I'll tell you an example, right? Like, so, um, you know, I, I have a firm, it's called Laconically, but uh, we create, we're trying to create, you know, a list of known good hashes for industrial control system files, right? And, uh, and this, this whole thing wasn't created just because I sat down one day and said, hey, look, we really need this. This happened one day because I was on an HMI system. We suspected that it was compromised. And every file on there looked like it was malware. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it's all like poorly named. None of it's signed. Some of it's communicating to the internet. Some of it's bound to weird ports. And uh, we're like, what is this? You know, I wish there was a quick way for me to go through a thousand files, and I can't go through them by hand. Uh, and you know, and, and there's no there's no signing. There's no known good hashes from the manufacturer. So um, that was that was something I thought we could probably just solve this, right? We probably just start creating a huge database of this. Right. And if someone else ever encounters a problem like this, they can probably just do a quick lookup to see whether or not they're looking at it has been seen before in installation media. Uh, these are these are things I think a lot of folks can you know bring to a market, bring solutions like this uh, that are very helpful to other people doing embedded assessments. Billy, now I have very important five questions for you. Are you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> Three words to describe yourself. <laughs> In a suit. Because <laughs> I have a meeting after this. <laughs> if you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Mm, probably a sharpened knife. There's something about knife fighting that's uh, appealing to me. <laughs> wow. Thanks. Good, answer. You wrote, good answer. If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Uh, my days as a Madagascanese olive smuggler. And uh, that's definitely a barroom discussion. Maybe the next time we catch up at uh, Casa Fuente, we'll talk about olive smuggling. I'm going to hold you to that, Billy. I'm going to hold you to that one. <laughs> Damn. In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? <laughs> <laughs> I think first mover advantage has, uh, has definite, definite advantages in the market, so I prefer to go first. That's the Marine. <laughs> Most Marines will answer that question first. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why if it's your reason or something else, but... Um, pick two celebrities to be your parents. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, John Stamos. People tell me that uh, I have some kind of uncanny representation. Uh, like uh, I look a lot like John Stamos. So, and, and maybe like Angelina Jolie. Mm. Wow. A common answer. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, she all is the, a popular all, I'm, I'm sorry. All the guys on this podcast have mommy issues. Yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> they all pick hot moms, myself included. Well, she was in Hackers, too. I don't know if that has still, any... Yeah, exactly. still I, I was getting ready to vehemently deny, but I, I just can't. <laughs> come on. Come on. I, I picked Jessica Alba. I mean... Yeah, well, that's another that's a good one. one. Yeah, 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 that is a fun choice. Dark like, Angel? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Billy, yes. thank you very much for appearing on Security Weekly. It was great to have you here. I wish you the best of luck in your new venture, and I can't wait to hang out with you more uh, Sans ICS Summit. Well, you'll be on a panel out there, is that correct? Yep, I'm going to be on a panel out there. So I'll be there at least for one day, Okay, at least. I don't have the date. You know, we're going to have to talk about that next year uh, okay. on our first show and announce the dates because I'll be teaching. Billy will be on a panel. It's in February. It's in Orlando. How can right. you not attend that? Exactly. Conference? Exactly. Billy, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. With that, we're going to take a short break. And during our short break, you're going to see a 34-minute video clip of our previous guest answers to the five questions because we think it's fun. Then we're going to air the original Mike Poor and Ed Scotus interview, the first time they were ever on the show 396 episodes ago. During the break, we will pick a winner for our T-shirt contest, and we will, we will. award yeah. the winner with a free 
hack naked t-shirt very similar to the one that I am wearing right now. <laughs> Not the one I'm wearing right Although if you want the one I'm wearing right now, I would literally give our listeners the shirt off my back. Trust me, you don't want it. <laughs> no, no, no. You remember, remember the post-exploitation towels? He Dude. ran out. Yes. Oh, boy. So with that, we'll take a short break uh, for lunch, and we're going to come back at 1 o'clock and interview Jeremy and Richard from the EFF. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back. Thank <laughs> you. 